Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got Professor Elizabeth Hinton on the podcast today. She is a professor of African-American studies and law at Yale University. And she has published one of those books, one of those books that comes along every so often and changes the conversation, changes the conversation about the past, which obviously, therefore, has a profound impact on the way we see and define things in the present. I recently published books called America on Fire. And in it, she talks about black violence in the 1960s and early 70s, and the response from police authorities and government. And she goes further than authors that I've read before. She points out this was violence on a scale not seen in the USA since the Civil War of the 1860s. She argues very convincingly, these were not criminal emotional outbursts. This was an uprising. This was a series of what you might call rebellions against the unjust, overreaching state. And it is best understood as such. And also, she points out that the reaction to it, the militarization of the police, the demonization of legitimate black demands for rights and equality, is something that has endured and still shapes the conversation and shapes the official response to this day. This is a huge subject. It was a great honor to have Elizabeth Hinton on the podcast talking about it. If you want to listen to previous episodes we've done, in this kind of area, we've talked to many US and British academics about struggle for civil rights. We talked to a member of the Black Panthers here in the UK in the 70s. And we talked to people about the history of police violence in the States at some length over the last year and a half. If you want to hear all that, best place to do it is historyhit.tv. It's a video channel. It's like Netflix for history. It's got videos on there, documentaries. It's also got all of the back episodes of this podcast, which is not available anywhere else. And they're there without ads as well. If you don't like my ads for some reason, you can listen to them all ad-free over there for a very small, very small monthly subscription, which goes directly towards some of the best history programs being produced on planet Earth at the moment. We're getting bigger and better all the time. Thank you very much indeed. We're launching all these new podcasts. They're all overtaking me in the top charts now, so I don't know how I feel about that. I have mixed feelings, to be honest with you. But please go and check out wonderful podcasts like Gone Medieval, The Ancients, Not Just the Tudors, and Warfare. This week, Team History is gearing up to go to the Chalk Valley History Festival. If you're in southern England, if you're nearby, coming along, please come and say hello. We have got History at Tent, we've got History at Stage, we've got History here everywhere. We have heavy History Hit presence. There is an inflatable tank which may work. It may work. We'll see. It's in the glorious tradition of British armoured fighting vehicle production. We spend a lot of money on it. We're hoping it works. So see you at Chalk Valley. Please come and say hello if you're there. 
In the meantime, everybody, please enjoy this podcast with Professor Elizabeth Hinton. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Your gigantic book starts in the 1960s, but can we just briefly talk about the stuff you address right at the beginning? The context going into the 1960s of penalizing black communities, particularly in the South, through the law to try and sustain a system of white social and political supremacy. Right. So from the Reconstruction period, from the emancipation of 4 million slaves in the U.S. following the Civil War on, most of the collective violence was perpetuated by white vigilante mobs who were hostile to integration and black mobility as millions of formerly enslaved people and their descendants left to the southern states for job opportunities and to escape the terrorism of lynching in the Jim Crow South for the industrial Midwest and the West, beginning with Wilmington in 1898, Springfield, Illinois in 1908, East St. Louis in 1917, where essentially white mobs made Black families choose between being shot to death or burned alive. And of course, we just commemorated the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. These were acts of collective violence that were meant to relegate the social order. And these white mobs were deeply entangled with law enforcement. And of course, this collective violence began to change in the 1960s amid the civil rights movement. So you talk about this upsurge of domestic violence between 64 and 72 in particular. What's the timing? What's the significance of 1964? What happens? So 1964 was the first major incident of what is called urban civil disorder or rioting. I choose that many of the people who engaged in these forms of collective action understood these events as rebellions. And in Harlem in 1964, a 15-year-old Black high school student was killed by a New York City police officer, and the community erupted for several days, burning buildings, engaging in confrontations with police officers and looting. And that summer also witnessed rebellions in eight other cities in Rochester, New York. The National Guard had to be called. And again, you know, this was the first time that Black collective violence emerged in U.S. history against exploitative and discriminatory and repressive institutions. And this form of protest, of course, coincides with the flourishing of the civil rights movement and nonviolent direct action protests that had characterized much of the drive to dismantle Jim Crow in the southern states. It's so interesting to call it rebellion. It's so different to think about it in those terms because it's been couched by many white writers, politicians, both at the time and subsequently, as just criminality. Right, exactly. And so that's one of the really important correctives I'm trying to make in the book and with this research. I mean, from Harlem on, Lyndon Johnson said, this violence has nothing to do with civil rights, even though in all of the rebellions, the factors that made people feel as though they had no recourse but to take violent action were rooted in the same grievances of the mainstream civil rights movement. That is protection from white supremacist terrorism and end to police brutality, but also job opportunities, expanded educational programs and robust public school systems and decent housing. I mean, this was also occurring at a time when much of the housing stock in the urban United States was completely dilapidated. Slum landlords kept 
homes in horrid conditions that were often overrun with vermin and rats. And these incidents, just like, again, the civil rights movement, were rooted in a call for political and economic inclusion in American society. And in distancing this political violence from civil rights protests and labeling it criminal, then the solution that Johnson and other policymakers embraced could not go beyond greater law enforcement penetration, more police, more surveillance, and later the expansion of the prison system. Yeah, you see, as a Brit, I was reading your book and thinking about the similarities and differences between the experience of the UK in Northern Ireland as well, where although, of course, it became heavily militarized, there was an attempt to deal with underlying issues as well. I think it's such an interesting kind of parallel story. But just also, I'm very interested by a lot of the rioting you mentioned, the rebellious activity was taking place in northern cities. Now, I talked about why when we're primed to think of the most egregious forms of white supremacy going on in the southern states, why do we see these insurrections taking place in northern cities? Well, so a couple of things. I mean, in part, it's because, you know, white vigilante violence is not relegated to the South. I just mentioned the violence in East St. Louis in 1917 and other cities. I mean, white supremacist violence is a nationwide problem, even though in some ways we see more incidents of lynching in the South. But the entanglement between white vigilante organizations and law enforcement extended to northern cities. And when we see this kind of coalesce. And when police in the post-war period, but especially from the mid-1960s onward in the context of the war on crime, when police begin to assume many of the previous functions of the white mob, it sets a kind of cocktail for a new kind of political violence. And I think the other really important thing that the book shows and that my research shows, and it's clearly laid out in a 25-page timeline of Black Rebellion that's a sort of appendix to the book, is that Watts in 1965 and Detroit and Newark in 67 and the hundred some cities that erupted after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. The news coverage focused on these incidents in large cities in the Northeast, but rebellion was incredibly widespread. I mean, there's a narrative that the Southern movement was completely nonviolent. And we see in places like Greensboro, North Carolina and Columbus, Georgia, cities in Mississippi and upper Florida, that residents in the southern states, too, are engaging in political violence as a way to secure civil rights and equal rights. And again, that political and economic inclusion in American society. I'm really interested in the politics of it. At what stage did the political incentives become aligned around, actually, rather than dealing with some of the underlying causes of this violence, to see this kind of dark electoral possibilities of militarizing the police, talking about law and order, dominating white suburbs electorally. Where does the political jigsaw of this start to come together? So we see some of this today. There is a tendency that anytime people are protesting for racial justice, the response on the part of authorities to say that this is criminal, that this is violent, and that it needs to be policed. So even beginning in the 1950s, when civil rights demonstrators are protesting to desegregate institutions, especially in the southern states, many southern Democrat politicians are saying this is criminal, that the nation is descending into chaos. But what's really interesting is that by the mid-1960s, again, in the aftermath of the violence during the summer of 1964, the Johnson administration calls for a war on crime in March 1965, which is 
a complement to the War on Poverty, part of Johnson's Great Society. And the idea was that the programs of the War on Poverty would address some of the root causes of racial discrimination and inequality and violence. And the programs of the War on Crime, which began an unprecedented investment at the federal level into local police forces. I mean, never before had the federal government involved itself in policing and issues of court systems and prisons directly before this moment. And of course, it's coinciding with the height of progressive social change and the civil rights revolution. And the programs of the War on Crime especially during the Johnson administration, began to expand police forces in communities that seemed prone to rioting and to militarize those forces with surplus weapons from Vietnam and U.S. interventions in the Caribbean and Latin America. So during this period, we begin to see police departments with armored tanks and bulletproof vests and riot control helmets and tear gas and helicopters, all of which were gifted or heavily discounted Essentially, the federal government gave these local police departments coupons to purchase these weapons. And so policing really begins to change, especially in the low-income communities of color that are targeted for these new crime control programs by officials and law enforcement authorities at all levels of government. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're talking to Professor Elizabeth Hinton about black violence. More after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
Your book is so challenging in terms of recasting these as rebellions and and then it starts you thinking about what well, you know the police is a kind of military force and a complex counterinsurgency basically going over decades and in many ways lasting today because it made me think about part of counterinsurgency is often the internment of vast numbers of people as you see from going back to the British strategy in the Boer War in South Africa 120 years ago. And famously, the USA Day has one of the world's largest prison populations. Is this something that you see is connected with the militarized nature of this conflict? Right. The fact that we are a mass incarceration society and that we disproportionately warehouse low-income, undereducated and black and brown people is our version of that internment. And we begin to see, again, you know, the insurgent threat was the civil rights movement, was Black rebellion in U.S. cities and also, of course, in the mid to late 1960s and beyond. And this is, of course, a worldwide phenomenon, but growing student movements, revolutionary movements that ultimately were responded to with the expansion of American law enforcement and this decision to expand police forces at the direct consequence to social welfare programs. I mean, the war on poverty never resulted in a job creation program for low-income Americans, but the war on crime resulted in a job creation program for police. These rising law enforcement programs and policing became the most implemented social program in low-income communities in the United States during this period and was, again, in response to the insurgent civil rights and radical militant demands coming out of communities of color, but also student groups and other radical organizations in the US and the world. You know, I interview hundreds of historians on this podcast, and there's an interesting discussion. Some say, you know, history is something that we all too often drag into our contemporary political arguments, and sometimes history is best studied forensically in its own context. It's impossible to do that in this case. This is an essential story in the present. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think for those of us who are interested in Tracing the historical development of inequality in the U.S. and racism history is vital. In fact, one of my mentors, Manny Marable, the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Malcolm X called Malcolm X, A Life and Reinvention. You know, he said for people who are concerned with the history of racism in the U.S., that history is a weapon in which we fight. And I think in order to understand how we got here, in order to push back against a lot of the pathological narratives and understandings about the vast inequality that exists in the U.S. today, we have to understand the ways in which socioeconomic development deeply, deeply is rooted in racial hierarchy and how that has played out historically. So I see history as an important tool and an important guide to think about how we might realize a more equitable future. And this book and my first book, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, The Making of Mass Incarceration in America, you know, really tries to trace the sets of decisions and the missed opportunities that led America to be the great incarcerator in the world. And if we can identify the decisions that brought us to this point, then I think it's also possible to identify the sets of decisions that can undo these harms and create a better society for all of us. Well, as you mentioned, creating a carceral state and militarized police forces at monumental expense, and yet the refusal to spend less money, presumably, on programs that actually might solve the problem. Because you mentioned the 1968 Kerner Commission I'd never heard of, but that feels like a very important 
piece of history now. Right. And actually, when you mentioned the kind of attempt to deal with some of the underlying problems in the context of the violence in Northern Ireland, I immediately thought of the Kerner Commission because it's not as if alternatives weren't consistently presented to policymakers. And the Kerner Commission or the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders was called by President Johnson in the middle of the rebellion in Detroit in 67. And Johnson charged the commission, stacked mostly with liberal reformers, to identify the causes and recommend solutions to respond to unrest, to prevent future rebellions. Because it seemed from the vantage of 1967 that this violence was getting worse and that it would surely continue. And the Kerner Commission said, if the federal government is really serious about addressing rebellion and preventing it in the future, then one, it needs to reckon with white racism. I think one of the most famous lines from the Kerner Commission report, which was released in early 1968, is that the United States was moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, and really brought attention to white racism and the role of racism in creating the conditions that bred rebellion or unrest in the first place. And the Kerner Commission said, okay, if we want to stop rebellion, we have to go far beyond the war on poverty because the war on poverty did not, despite its grand rhetorical name, did not represent a major structural transformation. The Kerner Commission said we need to support a massive investment or like a Marshall Plan in low-income urban areas. We need the private and public sectors to mobilize for job creation programs. We've got to completely overhaul urban public schools. Remedial education is not going to be enough to really change outcomes for poor people of color. We have to completely transform housing. I mean, essentially addressing all of the major grievances of both the civil rights movement, again, and the urban unrest in thousands of American cities throughout the 60s and early 70s. And the Johnson administration, you know, Johnson himself never commented on the report. These recommendations were seen as too radical, and the federal government essentially ignored them despite the fact that the Kerner Commission's report itself was sold as a mass market paperback, millions of Americans wanted to know and understand what was going on in the nation's cities. And instead of pursuing this path of expanding social welfare programs and providing for people's basic needs, the federal government instead supported the continued escalation of the programs of the war on crime, the expansion and militarization of police, and then eventually as we mentioned, you know, the vast expansion of the prison system and the increased reliance on prisons and police as a way to manage the material consequences of poverty and racial inequality as they appeared through crime and violence or social harm. When I give up this podcast, I'm going to start a radical political campaign that all public policy should be made by committees of experts like the Kerner Commission And we've got so many examples here in the UK who, if they were implemented, we would be in a much better place than we are now. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the tragedy of these stories and of the Kerner Commission stories. And it's one, too, that, you know, in many cities following rebellion, state or local, what were then called human relations commissions, would act in a similar way or come to similar conclusions as the Kerner Commissions. They would study the larger socioeconomic causes of the violence, recommend structural solutions. And yet, again, and this goes back to why terminology is so important and the view of this form of political violence as criminal, what ends up getting implemented or embraced are police reforms, expansion of law enforcement. And we see this playing out again and again. And when writing the book, you just kept on wondering what would the U.S. look like today had 
that massive investment that the Kerner Commission called for in 68 been realized, George Floyd and countless others would still very likely be with us. Last question. I've done several of these podcasts with experts on the history of policing in the US. And it's an intractable problem because we're told again and again that policing is a very federal, it's actually county and state city level, it's impossible to intervene. And yet your book, decisions made at the very top seem to flow down just fine, trickle down just fine to different autonomous police forces all over the country. So if you can militarize a police force and do all things that you've just described in this podcast, why can we not reverse that process? Exactly. And federal policymakers use this excuse too, crime control is a local matter, which of course obscures this history, obscures the ways that the federal government incentivizes and through grant programs forces state and local governments to make the crime control strategies that are developed at the federal level, at the national level, into local priorities. That is part of the fuel that has, or the climate that has made mass incarceration in the U.S. possible. And I do think that in order to begin to undo the harms of these policies, the embrace of policing and surveillance and incarceration over social welfare programs for at least the last 50 years in the post-civil rights period, the decision to do that has just left us in this place where in many locales inequality has been exacerbated and it's up to the federal government to then provide that leadership in the other direction. And the history of the war on crime and later the war on drugs proves that the federal government can act swiftly to completely reverse course or bring about an entire regime change when it comes to social policy, especially in low-income communities of color. Well, I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you very much. It's been a huge honor having you on the podcast. The book is called... America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for having me. The honor is all mine, Dan. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi, everyone. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.